Morning, church. Good to see you today. Boy, that drummer really had the spirit this morning, didn't he? (laughs) Nice to have you. Nice to have our guests with us this morning. We'd like to say welcome home to you. And uh, those who are joining us live stream, thanks for joining us. We've got a big live stream congregation out there all over the place, state of Florida, other states, and even other countries. Uh, I'm going to tell you how to vote, live streamers. Here's how you vote. Click like and share, and you cast a vote for Jesus. So there you go. You got that. Click like and share. How many, this is not a trick question, how many of you, if you had siblings growing up, were the older sibling in your family? How many older siblings? Quite a few. How many were the younger siblings? And maybe some were older, only children, and it's possible to be both the older and the younger sibling, and if you have enough of those. Okay, I'm going to go with the older sibling. So, let's say you're the older sibling, and your parents go out for the night, and they put you in charge. You're in charge of your younger siblings. You're telling them what to do, and if they don't want to do it, they might say something to you like, you're not the what of me. You're not the boss of me. There was a TV series about 20 years ago now. That was their theme song. You're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now. You're not the boss of me now, and you're not so big. I don't know if you remember that. So we've been in this sermon series entitled Obey Everything. That's taken from the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. So here we've been looking at the commands of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and primarily in the Sermon on the Mount. It's where most of Jesus' teaching commands are in the Sermon on the Mount. It's where they're concentrated. But what I want to do today, we're, we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at the why. We're going to circle back around. Instead of looking at a specific command to obey, we're looking at the question, why? Why? Is Jesus the boss of me? Yes, he is. Why should I obey Jesus? There Obviously, there are a lot of answers to that question. We could offer a lot of answers. I'm only going to look at three because I'm going to zero in on this passage in Matthew chapter 7. Okay, So today is three reasons why we want to obey Jesus' commands in the first place. The reason number one is because Jesus has the authority. Jesus has the authority. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and verse 26. Jesus said, anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys it is wise. Anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Notice that even in the manner in which Jesus teaches, he is communicating his authority, how he carries himself, how he acts, what he commands, what he doesn't command, the questions that he asks, and the teaching that he gives communicates authority, very authoritative. You do what I say, you're wise. You don't do what I say, you're foolish. Now, who talks that way? I don't talk that way. I don't get up here and say, I'm your preacher. Now, if you listen to me and you do what I say, you think like I tell you to think and you do what I act like I tell you to act, then you're wise. And if you don't, you're a fool. Now, I don't do that. I qualify. I've got all kinds, I call them weasel words because I learned this in sales. In sales, we use weasel words like maybe and potential and might and possibly. So one of my favorite things, for instance, when I'm teaching, I'll say, if I understand what the Bible is teaching here, then yada, yada, yada. Or I might say, church, now I might be wrong about this, but yada, yada, yada. Or I say, but church, in my opinion, yada, yada, yada. Or I'm not sure exactly what this verse means. Let me give you quotes from two or three different commentaries, yada, yada, yada. Those are all weasel words. I'm qualifying what I'm teaching, which is appropriate. It's appropriate for me and teachers like me. Not because I'm a weasel, or at least not altogether, but because I'm human, and human beings, we are finite. We're finite. We're limited. 
We don't have a perfect understanding, really, of anything, much less God's Word. Now, we can have an adequate understanding of God's Word. You know, language is adequate to communicate. God uses it to communicate with us. Just because we have an adequate understanding doesn't mean we necessarily have a perfect understanding. We don't. So I could be wrong. might change my mind. I've changed my mind on a lot of things. You probably changed your mind on a lot of things when it comes to Scripture and spiritual things. So we qualify. The rabbis who were contemporary with Jesus were the same, same way. They qualified what they taught. They used weasel words. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. All right, so the, what he's saying there, the rabbis in Jesus' day would do the same thing I'm talking about. They would qualify their teaching. They would say, well, according to the school of the rabbi Hillel, then this is how we're to approach this particular commandment. They qualified, and rightly so. They qualified what they said. And Jesus never did that, right? We'll never read Jesus quoting for like the Ten Commandments. Said, Now, here's what they read in the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Now, if I understand what God was saying here, he doesn't say that. Jesus will quote the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, you've heard you shall not murder, but I say to you, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother. You, you've heard you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, you, know, you should not even look upon someone with lust. So Jesus was very authoritative in the way that he taught, and it was quite refreshing to the crowds in that day. Well, why is that? Because Jesus really has the authority. In Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, all authority, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything. So we obey because Jesus has the authority. Where does that come from? At least two places, more than one. At least two places. Number one, because he's creator. All right, First John says, nothing was created apart from Jesus Christ. Intimately involved in the creation. What you create, you own. You have authority over. Secondly, not only is he the creator, he's the redeemer. So you get hard up for cash, so you take your gold watch, and you go and you pawn the gold watch. You get some money for it, maybe the collateral for a loan. Later on, you come into some money. So you go back to the pawn shop and you redeem your gold watch. When you redeem it, that means you're buying it back from the pawn shop. That's what redeem means to buy back. So here we are. God owned us by virtue of creating us, but we pawned our souls by sinning. We just pawned them over to Satan so that now he's got the control. Here comes Jesus by his blood, he redeemed us, meaning he bought us back through his blood. So Jesus has a double claim of authority over our lives. Number one, by virtue of creation. Number two, by virtue of redemption. So again, most of what I'm saying today, just about everybody in here is a Christian. You know this, you understand this, but it bears repeating, reinforcing, and reemphasizing. Why do we obey Jesus? Because he's the man. He has the authority. And I help raise my grandkids, and we like to play this little game. I say, Cora, Abilene, Carson, Caleb, who's in charge? They like to say, I am. I say, who's the boss? I am. Who's the man? I am. Who's the papa? I am. I say, no, I am. I'm the man. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm the papa. We go back and forth and go back and forth because they like to play that game. But at the end of the day, I am the papa. And I am in charge, and they have to do what I say, and they know that. Well, we look up to God, and we say, God's the man. He's in charge. He's the boss, and he's the papa, and he has the authority, so we do what he says. All right, that's reason number one. We knew that. Number two, why obey everything? 
Because obedience lays a foundation. Obedience lays a foundation to our lives. Matthew 7, 24. Jesus continues, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Solid rock. Solid rock foundation. That's what obedience does. I was probably 12 or 13 when I went to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico, family vacation, learn about the stalactites and the stalagmites. Right? You've been in caverns. You've been in caves. You've seen the stalactites and the stalagmites. Now, the difference between stalactites and stalagmites, one's on the top, one's on the bottom. One's on the ceiling of the cave, one's on the floor of the cave. They have different names, right? Which ones are on the ceiling? Stalactites. The ones that are on the floor of the cave are the stalagmites. Now, you know how to tell these two apart. There's a little word hack there. Some of you already know it because you're nodding your heads, but if you don't, here's how you can tell those two apart. If the ones on the top don't hold tight, they might fall down to the bottom. So the stalactites are on the top of the cave, and the stalagmites are on the floor of the cave. If you're ever in jeopardy, you know, and that's the question, now you know the answer. You're welcome. Stalactites, stalagmites. How are those formed? How are the stalactites and stalagmites formed? It's because these caves have condensation on the ceiling of the cave. There'll be a tiny drip of water that drops from the ceiling, leaving a deposit of sediment up there on the top, limestone sediment, just a tiny, tiny deposit. And then when the drop of water hits the floor of the cave, right, the cavern, then it, it also leaves a, a layer of a deposit of sediment down here on the bottom, the, the, the sandstone, or the limestone, rather. And so over time, over time, those little drops and those layers and deposits the, the, gets, the stalactite gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the stalagmite gets taller and taller and taller, and eventually a lot of them, they meet in the middle, and they form this big limestone column. But it's a progressive process over time. I, like, I, I think that's a good analogy for our obedience. So Jesus here, he's been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. This is how a kingdom man and a kingdom woman lives. You know, the Beatitudes, we're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Turn the other cheek. Pray for your enemies. Give, serve, worship. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. So he's giving all these commands, how we live, as we obey. Each time we obey, we act in faith, we seek first the kingdom, we live according to the obedience to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Each time we do that, day by day, even hour by hour, we're making deposits onto the foundation of our lives. The character of Christ is progressively being built and built and built into our soul and into our spirit. We are becoming more and more like Christ. Now, what's interesting, as scientists study the human brain, and they're, of course, we're always learning more and more about how the brain works and how change takes place. They used to think that the brain was pretty much fixed by a certain age. You're all locked into a certain personality type and can't really change that. They don't believe that anymore. There's, there's a, there, what they call a neuroplasticity of the brain, which means the brain is capable of changing. And there's a Christian author who's really pretty good, Dr. Kurt Thompson, who wrote a book called The Anatomy of the Soul, psychiatrist, and he studied a lot on neuroplasticity. And he's a Christian, and he writes about how God, the Holy Spirit, can use that and how he does use that to build this foundation, this character of Christ into our lives. Let me give you a quote here. Kind of a long quote, so hang with me on this. But for those of you who like the science, you like the science, you'll probably like this quote. 
He writes, new findings in the fields of neuroscience and attachment offer a fresh means by which we can understand and experience the abundant life to which Jesus has called us. What is the role of the brain in spiritual transformation? Romans 12, 2, Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Renewing of your mind. So the brain, he writes, contributes to transformation through the process of neuroplasticity, the ongoing building of new and the modification of existing patterns or networks of neurons in response to input from the mind, body, and external world. These networks of neurons are the physical repositories of our beliefs, our values, attitudes, character, thoughts, memories, and knowledge, all of which begin at or before birth and continue throughout our lives. Because the brain and mind are inextricably linked, when we choose, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to repeatedly think about others, think about ourselves, think about God through the lens of Scripture, and we model our lives after Jesus, neuroplasticity facilitates the physical restructuring of the brain, creating and strengthening patterns and networks of neurons that represent God's truth. These neural patterns, in turn, influence what we think about and the behavioral choices that we make, resulting in our minds becoming more like the mind of Christ. This is exactly the spiritual transformation that Scripture speaks about, but described by way of our neurology. As spiritual transformation progresses, our character becomes more closely aligned with Jesus' character and spiritual self. We progressively become a clearer reflection of the image of God, experiencing life more abundantly as God intends. God gives us the freedom to form. He gives us the freedom to form and to transform our spiritual selves any way we want. If we choose to embrace, quote-unquote, truth about life and ourselves that is not God's truth, our spiritual transformation will lead ultimately to dysfunction and an impoverished quality of life. Jesus' life and teaching provide us with the ultimate guide to human flourishing. What Jesus called the abundant life, the rich and the satisfying life. Okay, so there's a little shot of science for you this morning. Talking about why do we obey Jesus? Because he's the man, he's got the authority. Because through the process of obeying Jesus' commands, we are laying a foundation of character for our lives. Now, and the third reason here is, why do we need that foundation? Because the storm is coming. And there's the third reason. We want to obey Jesus and we want to lay that foundation because the storm is coming. Verse 25. Jesus continues, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Now, you don't have to be, I'm not a prophet, I don't have a prophetic gift, and you don't have to be a prophet to know that when you live life as a human being in this fallen world, you're going to have storms. It's kind of like uh, being a Floridian. You live in Florida. If you're, a Floridian, if you're a Floridian, live in Florida, then you know from June through November, there will be storms. That's our storm season. That's our hurricane season. Now, you may or may not know, back in May of this year, 
the National Weather Service predicted a greater than average number of storms for this storm season. Now, average number of storms in, in Florida is around 12 or 13 so far. You know how many storms we've had, hurricanes we've had so far? 25. 25 storms so far. So, yeah, they predicted, actually they predicted about 16 or 17. We've had 25. So that's, that's greater than normal. But nevertheless, I doubt any of you could tell me that they had predicted back in May there'd be 17 storms because nobody's paying attention to the National Weather Service in May. We don't care. It doesn't make any difference. We just know there's going to be storms. So we have a general level of preparedness. You got your storm shutters in the garage there, or you've got last year's plywood out there somewhere. You got a flashlight somewhere, batteries. We don't really ratchet up the hurricane preps until it's right out there off, off the shore. Then we, then we run to Home Depot and we trample over people to get what we need to do the hurricane prep. So likewise, in life, in life, here, this is just a human condition. To be a, a, a human being in this fallen world, there are things that shake us, that shake us up in life. The, a cancer diagnosis is a storm. The premature death of a loved one is a storm. If you're in an accident, there's trauma as a result of that accident to your body. That's a storm. If you live with chronic pain, right? if you've got a family member who's living with substance abuse or addiction, that's a storm. If you lose your job, that's a storm. Storms, we just experience storms just by virtue of being people in a fallen world. But having said that, there seem to be seasons in our lives where several storms gang up on us at one time. Hey, was anybody living here in Florida back in 2004? Anybody living here in 2004, 2004? Okay. Do you remember the, do you remember the hurricanes of 2004? You can't ever forget. That's when we had, in the space of six weeks, four hurricanes hit Florida in six weeks. Right? It was like Charlie, Ivan... Gene and Francis, Charlie, Ivan, Gene and Francis. Now, I wasn't here in Vero Beach. I was in, living in Central Florida at the time. So I don't know if you got all four of them here in Vero Beach or not. But in Central Florida, every one of those storms crossed Central Florida. We had like a big bullseye on Central Florida. Four storms in six weeks. You know, that was a bad storm season. Kind of like Louisiana. Louisiana's got hit by five hurricanes this storm season. They're getting hammered. I feel for them. I, we know what that's like. A lot of us know what that's like. And likewise, again, not a prophet, just a preacher, but you look at what's going on in the world today, and it wouldn't be hard to forecast, we've got a really busy storm season coming up. Uh, we've got all kinds of things going on. We've got the economy. I see an economic storm coming, because I don't think you can just print $6 trillion and inject it into the economy and not have some consequences of that. Again, I'm not an economist just a preacher. I think who, regardless who wins the presidency, there's going to be an economic storm. That's going to happen. There's going to be some kind of reset. Uh, of course, we have political upheaval. We have social unrest right now. And we have, we have what's coming close to religious persecution. Now, I want to read to you. I got three quotes today. I've already read you the one, the longest one. Here's a second quote. This is from a book called Live Not by Lies, a manual for Christian dissidents is the subtitle. Live Not by Lies. And Rod Dreher writes, now let me give you this quote. 
He said, this book is meant to be a how-to manual for Christian dissidents who will be living under soft totalitarianism in the near future. He writes, I traveled the former Iron Curtain countries to interview those who had been active in the dissident movements during the Cold War. He says, my alarm was catalyzed in part by the fact that nearly all these mostly elderly former citizens of the Soviet bloc are shocked to see a creeping totalitarianism in the West especially the United States. These survivors see redefinition of basic language, resulting in, quote-unquote, new speak. That means the opposite of standard usage. They see open deplatforming, cancel culture, firing of those whose views are considered deviant from the acceptable speech. He writes several other things, but he says, in sum, summary, this is what these people saw while they were growing up under Soviet totalitarianism, and they are gobsmacked to see it here in the country to which they fled for freedom. As one of my interviewees commented, we know how this works. Again, I don't know if he's right about that, but that's what these folks see who lived and grew up under totalitarianism. They, they see the storm clouds. They see the signs. Now, so let's say all that happens. I don't say that to be an alarmist. Make everybody, oh, I'm so depressed, I'm so afraid. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. The whole point here is when we follow the man who has the authority and we live our lives in obedience to his commands, we have laid a foundation for storms. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5, do not be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Don't be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. The third quote I'm going to give you, and this is the one I'll end with, this is the quote I'll end with, comes from John Piper. And he writes this to preachers like me, but we'll all be able to relate. John Piper wrote this very recently. He said, just imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. And what remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. And then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real, radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews chapter 10. Quote, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. End quote. Christians who will face hate, reviling, and exclusion for Christ's sake, and yet, like Luke 6, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Have you been cultivating Christians who see the beauty and worth of the Son of God? Are you raising up generations of those who will say with Paul, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Have you shown them that they are temporary residents and foreigners? Second Peter and that their citizenship is in heaven, from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number, for the longest time, even in America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? End quote. That's the challenge to us preachers. And I say, I hope the answer is yes. And as I look out on this congregation, I say, I believe that to be true. 
I know there are people here who've been obeying Jesus for years and years and years. Some more recently, but for decades even. You know what you've been doing? Laying that foundation. Whatever comes, whatever comes, you and Jesus can handle it. Jesus and his disciples on the Sea of Galilee, the storm comes up out of nowhere. And these professional fishermen are terrified. The boat is being swamped. They're afraid they're going to sink. Jesus is snoozing up there in the bow of the boat. And finally, they're so afraid, they go, wake him up. Wake up, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus said, kind of rebuked him. Maybe he was grumpy because they woke him up. But he kind of rebuked him, said, you've got such little faith. And you know how when he stood up and he rebuked the storm. He spoke to the storm. He said, silence, peace, be still. And the storm called. You, you know that story. I, I don't know what all the applications are. I don't think it's necessarily that, that Jesus makes all storms go away. It's not that. I think it's more this, that when Jesus is in your boat, you don't have to be afraid of the storm. Whatever happens, either we're going to ride it through and we'll be safe on the other side. Hey, if it sinks and we die, to live is Christ, to die is game. We're going to a place where we finally get to rest and enter into God's rest and be with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today. Some here right now are in the midst of a storm, maybe have been, feels like for a long, long time. Some maybe just coming out of a storm. Maybe all of us are heading in to some storms like we've never experienced before. Regardless of all that, we know from what Jesus said, what he taught, what he modeled, what he commanded by his authority, that living for Him and in obedience to Him lays a foundation in our lives that cannot be shaken by any storm. Our trust, faith, and confidence is in You. In Jesus' name, amen.